case S02, E06, Slowburn Shakespeare, part four of six. Rich man, poor man, Shakespearean guy. Welcome back. I am not even going to pretend. This upcoming theory, I love it so much, I've dedicated almost the entire episode to it. And by the end, I hope you'll be in full agreement that it's been worth every minute of your time. If nothing else, this one is a nice palate cleanser. We go from wild cipher chasing and apparent aristocratic monsters to intrigue, espionage, murder? But maybe not. Without further ado, let's get into our next candidate. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection, and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements, and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. Now, you may remember the title of the previous episode was Cut Out Cipher Monster Spy. And in this episode, it was Rich Man, Poor Man, Shakespearean Guy. That's not an accident. But that takes us on to Spy. Also a poet, playwright, translator, philosopher. Who is this man blessed with such a galaxy of talents? Christopher Marlowe. The first and only non-aristocratic candidate in the shortlist of the five top theories Marlowe's fame is not simply inherited through lineage and money. His is the far more impressive artefact of a remarkable life. Marlowe's baptism on the 26th of February 1564 was exactly two months before William Shakespeare's on the 26th of April 1564, though his death seems to have happened considerably sooner than Shakespeare's did. Thirty years sooner, in fact, in 1593, when he was only 29. Notably, the works of Shakespeare started to appear seven years before Marlowe's untimely demise, but they also blithely continued afterwards as if nothing had happened until 1613. And of course, that promptly raises a rather obvious question. If the events, as told, are true, how could a dead man spend the next 20 years writing the rest of the works of Shakespeare? Even a very determined artistic genius is going to find death rather a setback to their creative endeavours. To answer this question, and help us with some other issues later in this theory, we need to take a little detour through Marlowe's spectacularly colourful and hotly debated life. Along with his birth, Marlowe's life has some other interesting parallels with Shakespeare's. So William was the son of a glover. Kit, as Christopher was sometimes known, was the son of a shoemaker. After the loss of his sister, he became the eldest child with seven younger siblings and all went fairly quietly through school until he received a scholarship and went to Cambridge University. That's when things started to get interesting. At the age of 20, he got a Bachelor of Arts degree, 
but as he starts his Master of Arts degree, Corpus Christi records from 1584 to 1585 show extended university absences. And then, when he was back in attendance, his personal expenses accounts show him spending rather more on food and drink than his scholarship could have long withstood. Where was he vanishing to? And where was the money coming from? I mean, maybe he had a part-time job. Maybe he was already publishing. Or maybe there's another explanation, which we will come back to. Whatever the case, three years later, in 1587, the university began to nervously dither about whether to award him his Master of Arts. Rumours were circulating that he might have plans to become a Roman Catholic priest. Awkward, if true. Queen Elizabeth I, a stout Protestant, took a very dim view of such matters. Only a few years earlier, she had begun issuing a range of anti-Catholic laws, laws that, amongst other things, explicitly criminalised acts like becoming Roman Catholic priests. But then, of all things, the Privy Council wrote to the university. What is the Privy Council? Okay, it is a concilium familiare. That is, a highly select group drawn from the church, the law, the military, and so forth, and their purpose is to advise the ruling monarch on various issues. It was, and is to this day, a powerful group, historically prone to occasional periods of wild corruption, sometimes attempting to steer the monarch, sometimes being used by the monarch as a convenient means of sidestepping due process. A curt reprimand from the Privy Council would have been akin to receiving a very dark look from the Queen herself. One did not play games with the Privy Council. So what was in the letter from this august group of powerful men to the university? Unfortunately, we don't know. The letter is lost, but the records of its existence remain in the minutes of the Privy Council Register taken on the 29th of July, 1587, thus. Whereas it was reported that Christopher Morley, an alternative of Marlowe, was determined to have gone beyond the seas to Reims and there to remain, their lordships thought good to certify that he had no such intent, but that in all his actions he had behaved himself orderly and discreetly, whereby he had done Her Majesty good service, and deserved to be rewarded for his faithful dealing. Their lordships requested that the rumour thereof should be allayed by all possible means, and that he should be furthered in the degree he was to take this next commencement, because it was not Her Majesty's pleasure that anyone employed as he had been in matters touching the benefit of his country should be defamed by those that are ignorant in the affairs he went about. Yikes. This entry signs off with the titles of the Lord Archbishop John Whitgift, Lord Chancellor Christopher Hatton, Lord Treasurer William Cecil, Lord Chamberlain Henry Carey, and Mr Comptroller James Crofts. That is some remarkably powerful friends for a 23-year-old shoemaker's son still not quite fresh out of university. And it raises some fascinating questions. What is this 
good service that Kit has done for Her Majesty. Why is the Privy Council so anxious to quash any rumours that might be damaging to this as yet unknown young man? What are these matters touching the benefit of his country? I mean, clearly they are remarkable enough that the Privy Council and by extension perhaps even the Queen herself are directly interested in his personal affairs. But what were they? Historians have pored over the dates and documents and suggest that whatever this matter might be, it seems to have possibly happened somewhere between March 1587 towards the end of his studies and the July of this meeting itself, about four or five months later, but beyond that, it's all very murky. We can only speculate, of course, but history and past examples suggest that one reasonable answer was espionage. In particular, one theory argues that he was a secret agent for Sir Francis Walsingham. In case it needs saying, spying was as much a major industry through history as it is now, and by definition, good spies don't look like spies at all. So for all we know, he might have been perfect. From the outside, seemingly just another unremarkable, lower-middle-class young man, yet, as history would show, clearly smart enough to come up with convincing fictions and characters when required. Anyway, if it really were espionage, the vague language around this employment and its benefit to Queen and country is exactly what one might expect. It really is rather hard to keep secret agents under wraps if someone is faithfully minuting all the details about them and then filing those records neatly away, so the ambiguity of this description would fit. Quite how the sentiments were expressed in that letter that I've mentioned to the university itself, of course we will never know, but I can imagine that the recipients at Cambridge gave a petrified squeak of dismay at the idea of defaming one of Queen Elizabeth's personal favourites, and I imagine they expedited the removal of any blocks with all possible speed. Certainly, Marlowe's MA was conferred exactly on schedule, and that same year, 1587, he set off out into the world to start his distinguished, if very short-lived, literary career. What did Marlowe's six remaining years entail? Well, the evidence is scant. To guide us, we have legal documents, and we have literary texts, and then we have a mess. We've done most of the legal and official records already, and we'll get into the literary canon shortly, so for now, let's wade knee-deep into the really dramatic stuff. Marlowe has been described, with, I mean, who knows how much accuracy, as a carefully reasoned and convincing atheist, a forger of counterfeit coins a practised fighter, <laughs> some kind of martial artist, a magician, obviously, a libertine, an epicurean, and, of course, as we know, a spy. There were also insinuations about his same-sex interests. Remember, in that time, this would have been looked on very differently, especially in light of how sympathetically his play Edward II depicts the doomed love story of the king and his nobleman, the Earl of Cornwall. And if all that together sounds like a lot, then there's his death. Okay, this is a saga by itself, so hang on. It all starts in May 1593. There's a lot of background context, but I'm going to try to simplify it right down to the major points. So posters go up threatening Protestant refugees 
but one of those posters makes some fairly pointed allusions to the works of Marlowe, which by this point his works are now fairly well known. He's a pretty good seller. The Privy Council steps in yet again, and one Thomas Kidd is arrested. Unfortunately, Kidd had spent some time a couple of years earlier working alongside Marlowe, and he absolutely throws Marlowe under the bus. Kidd describes him as disorderly, heretical, irreligious, intemperate, cruel, treasonous. We might laugh at these kinds of things now, but back then, this was serious. These accusations would not just have given the average Elizabethan aristocrat the absolute vapours. If proven against Marlowe, many of these were crimes carrying the ultimate sentence. Execution. When a warrant is promptly issued for Marlowe's arrest, then, this is no small matter. Now, the state might be playing along until it can find a way to make the kid problem go away, or the warrant might be sincere and Marlowe's life could be in serious jeopardy. Two days later, on the 20th of May, Marlowe presents himself to the Privy Council as the warrant requires, but the Privy Council is having a day off that day. Ten days later, on the 30th of May, Marlowe is dead. Or is he? If Kit's life had courted controversy up to this point, it was as nothing compared to this final scene. There are many accounts, I'll try to summarise some of them very briefly. In one account, Marlowe has gone to a tavern and he meets a rival in love there, a bawdy serving man. They quarrel, presumably about their lover, and Marlowe is fatally stabbed. In another version, he's in a tavern, there's a theme here, and a drunken brawl breaks out, and Marlowe is killed. So in this narrative, his death is incidental rather than intentional, he's just collateral. For a long time, there is much speculation and little in the way of fact. But then, it turns out that an inquest was ordered, and that it was carried out the very next day after his death. Remarkably, despite the intense interest in the matter, yet another highly relevant document, the inquest report, vanishes without a trace, and it is only rediscovered in 1925. That's over three centuries later. I don't know, maybe the filing systems back then were really terrible, but it's just weird how these really relevant documents just keep vanishing and then suddenly reappearing. Anyway, translated from its original Latin and heavily edited, because these are really weirdly wordy documents. If you read the original, you'll see what I mean. So the most relevant parts of that inquisition read Ingram Fraser, late of London, gentleman and the aforesaid Christopher Morley, and Nicholas Skears, late of London, gentleman, and Robert Poley, of London, aforesaid, gentleman, on the 30th of May, met together in a room, and there passed the time together. And after supper, the said Ingram and Christopher Morley were in speech, and uttered one to the other diverse malicious words, for the reason that they could not be at one nor agree about the payment of a sum of pence, that is, the reckoning, there. And the said Christopher Morley moved with anger against the said Ingram Fraser, 
It so befell that the said Christopher Morley maliciously drew the dagger of the said Ingram, which was at his back, and with the same dagger maliciously gave the aforesaid Ingram two wounds on his head. Whereupon the said Ingram, in fear of being slain with the dagger aforesaid, to the value of twelve pence, gave the said Christopher then and there a mortal wound over his right eye of the depth of two inches and of the width of one inch, of which mortal wound the aforesaid Christopher Morley then and there instantly died. Given the day and year above, named and co, William Danby Coroner, blah blah blah. Hmm. Well. If you hoped that the official account would clarify matters, it really does not. At all. Firstly, the inquest was held by the coroner of the Queen's household. In itself, this is actually not remarkable because his death occurred within 12 miles of the monarch and this is actually a norm for the time. But there was no local county coroner present, which technically invalidated the whole thing. Now, was that an accidental omission? Was it a deliberate effort to keep the whole thing tightly under wraps? Hmm, difficult to say. There are other cases where the county coroner isn't present for other very unremarkable deaths, but it's interesting that it should occur in this case too. The inquest testimony too, or rather its source, is extremely dubious. So who were these three men that Marlowe spent the day with? Well, it turns out that all three answered to or were employed by one or other of the Walsinghams either Thomas Walsingham or his far more famous relation, Sir Francis Walsingham. Now, if you remember from earlier, Francis Walsingham is theorised to have been Marlowe's handler, and whether he was or not, he was Queen Elizabeth's spy master and he remains one of the most famous figures in espionage throughout history. So, Three Walsingham men are in the house, and the testimony at the inquest comes mainly from the two not directly involved in Marlowe's death, Poley and Skiers. They claim that Marlowe got into a dispute with this third member of this group, Fraser, over money, and an enraged Marlowe lashed out at him with Fraser's own dagger. A rash move for a man outnumbered three to one, but maybe he's the rash kind of person who does those sorts of things. Matters instantly escalate. Fraser fights back, he snatches the dagger from Marlowe, and whether assisted by his two friends or not, Fraser stabs Marlowe super dexterum oculum sum. That is, just under the bony edge of the right eye, supposedly killing him instantly. The day after the inquest finished, only two days after Marlowe's death, Marlowe is buried in an unmarked grave, and a month later, his killer, Fraser, is pardoned. Now, scholars and interested parties have been unsurprisingly sceptical. As I've noted, why no county coroner? Now, that's not completely damning because other cases with such irregularities occurred, but at the same time, those other cases of malpractice don't indemnify this instance from premeditation. Why an unmarked grave? I mean, this could have been the mark of disgrace, yes, but could it also have been an effort to stop people digging up the grave and finding nothing, or the wrong man? That aside, could such an injury as the one described actually kill Marlowe instantly? Medical experts argue that even if fatal, 
the wound would have taken at least five to six minutes to finish him off. And if the coroner's report can be inaccurate on that point, what else might be fictitious besides? Did the two Walsingham witnesses just make the whole thing up? One of these two men, Robert Poley, is described as a consummate liar, an agent provocateur for the state, and a genius of the Elizabethan underworld. The other, Nicholas Skears, is a well-known confidence trickster. This is not exactly a stellar lineup. The entry for Marlowe in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography summarises the matter very nicely as follows. The nature of Marlowe's companions raises questions about their reliability as witnesses. Nicholas Skears was a swindler who, a month previously, had been accused in Star Chamber of entrapping young gents. In another case, he combined with Fraser to undermine and deceive a young heir, Drew Woodliffe. Robert Poley was the Walsingham spy who had infiltrated the Babington conspiracy. Contemporary accounts of his cunning and knavery abound. Frequently employed on missions abroad, he had recently returned from the Netherlands and was still nominally in Her Majesty's service when present at Detford. That's the scene of Marlowe's murder. That the inquest's account depended on these two men, the only independent witnesses of this fatal affray, is at the least unsatisfactory. They also brought to the scene certain high-up political connections. Skiers served the Earl of Essex, whom he described in Star Chamber as his lord and master. Poley reported to Sir Robert Cecil, who correctly described him as no fool. That these links betoken some covert intrigue against Marlowe has yet to be proved, but they add to a sense that something more complex is concealed beneath the story of The Reckoning. But remember, this inquest report vanished for the next three centuries and the absence of any official explanation to the matter left a huge vacuum in which competing theories happily mushroomed. Actually, its arrival didn't really make anything clearer anyway. Arguably, it just made things even murkier still. But, whatever the case, in the years after Marlowe's death, people were already asking a lot of questions about what exactly had happened. Plenty of people presumed his death was genuine, but rather than accepting that it was the result of a brawl over money, they wondered if the motives weren't much bigger. After all, intrigue and paranoia thrived just as much in the dark corners of the Tudor court as it does in the shadows of the halls of power today and lots of powerful people might have reason to fear and loathe Marlowe. So, perhaps it was a plot ordered by a Walsingham wife, jealous of his relationship with her husband, or by Walter Raleigh as a way to protect himself, by William Cecil as punishment for spreading Catholic propaganda, by the Privy Council for being a double agent, by the Queen for his atheism, and so on. But a few were more creative and went even bigger still. What if, they said, it was more elaborate than that? What if he actually didn't die at all? Maybe this was all a subtle plot to allow him to fake his own death. He supposedly worked for Sir Francis Walsingham, after all, and the three Walsingham men at the house would have been in on it. So could the Privy Council, and the Queen, of course. 
Or they weren't in on it, but his three friends couldn't stomach the idea of killing him, so they all agreed to pretend to their paymasters that the matter has happened, and Marlowe is obliged to go into hiding not just from his accusers, like Kidd, but from everyone. Whatever the case, conveniently staged death would have dealt with the awkward matter of the warrant out for his arrest and settled a few other issues too. And all Marlowe would have to do is move a few miles away, suitably alter his appearance, and assume a convincing new identity. After all, travel in the 1500s was difficult. Even 20 miles could put someone out of their old world and into an entirely new one that might as well have been as distant as the moon. Even if someone had happened, by pure chance, to stumble from that old world into the new one and glimpse him, there were no CCTV cameras, no fingerprinting, no DNA tests. No matter how much they might suspect the truth, it would have been impossible to prove and easy to argue against. There was, after all, a dead Kit Marlowe buried in an unmarked grave in a church somewhere. Anyway, you get the idea. And most relevant to this miniseries, you can also probably see where Marlovia, the theory that Kit Marlowe was Shakespeare, again, my term, nobody else's, takes dramatic flight from this late stage exit pursued by a bear. Marlowe dies in a fight but not really. And then he's buried in an unmarked grave, but not really. And the curtain closes on his short life, but not really. Because now he's free, perhaps doing even more espionage for Queen and Country, perhaps staying as far out of sight of the Queen's men as he possibly can, but always round, conveniently unencumbered by a lot of the previous baggage that had been getting in his way. The rumours and warrants and accusations all die with him. However, Marlovia argues, as a poet and a playwright, he would have been devastated at the idea of never practising his art again. Remember, Marlowe was a famous playwright in his own time. He was bigger and more famous than Shakespeare. And now he has an obvious solution on hand, his tradecraft. Kit Marlowe dies and Shakespeare is born. For convenience, his baptism is exactly two months different. He comes from the same social class and his father makes things for feet rather than for hands. But here the similarities end. Now he is transformed from Epicurean man about town to hard-working husband and father. So, what about Marlowe's publications? From leaving Cambridge to his spectacularly contentious death, Marlowe seems to have written at least six plays, one for each year he had left before his departure from the limelight. As usual, the precise canon is messy for many of the same reasons that Shakespeare's canon is also messy. Attributions on texts are not always clear. Sometimes there are no names, sometimes there are multiple names, sometimes there are just initials. Sometimes people have put Christopher Marlowe on texts that seem pretty obviously to not be by him, presumably to flog them to unsuspecting buyers. Essentially, just like Shakespeare then, there exists a handful of core works, these six plays, that most people seem to agree on. And then there's a lot of heat and not necessarily much light around the periphery. On the basis of the accepted works, Marlowe is regularly described as one of the most eminent Elizabethan poets and dramatists. As I've said, in his lifetime, Kit was far more highly celebrated than Shakespeare and Marlovia argues that during this time, William Shakespeare disappears from all biographical research 
just at the moment when Marlowe first comes on the stage. Then, shortly after Marlowe's death, Shakespeare's star is suddenly in the ascendant. The reasoning here, of course, is that Shakespeare's increasing eminence after Marlowe's death is a direct result of Marlowe thereafter dedicating all his literary prowess to his publications under Shakespeare's name. As a result of the possibilities left by his life and death and the way that these match up nicely with the Shakespeare timeline and this shift in Shakespeare's popularity, in 1819 and 1820, anonymous articles were published in The Monthly Review suggesting that Marlowe and Shakespeare were the same person. In fact, rather than Marlowe being Shakespeare, some proposed the argument the other way round. Maybe Shakespeare had actually been moonlighting as Marlowe. But this is all external evidence. Timelines, biographical details, circumstantial alignments in the various little stars of the Elizabethan theatrical world, However fun the whole spy-poet-turned-Shakespeare theory is in general, with nothing more concrete to sustain it than mere speculation, after a short period of interest it sank gently into the depths of time. That is, until over a century later when Calvin Hoffman, you may remember him from a previous episode, revived it in 1955 by taking a longer look at the internal linguistic evidence. In broad terms, Marlowe's writing was not only stylistically similar to Shakespeare's, it also seems to have influenced it, in some cases really quite a lot. So, for instance, Marlowe popularised unrhymed iambic pentameter, and this was picked up by Shakespeare in many of his writings. And there are other key examples that Marlowevia point to. Take Marlowe's Jew of Malta play. In it, Barabbas sees Abigail on a balcony above him, and he says, But stay, what star shines yonder in the east? The lodestar of my life, if Abigail. Now compare this with, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. That's right, those are Romeo's famous lines when he sees Juliet on a balcony above him. I'd be very surprised if most people don't recognise the immediate proximity here in both plays. One says, but stay, the other says, but soft. One says, what star shines yonder in the east? The other says, what light through yonder window breaks? I mean, they have literally the same structure, their questions, they've got the same words. So, yeah. Now, obviously, this could be pure coincidence, and I could be the true Tudor heir to the throne. The problem is, we don't know why this has happened. Now, if Shakespeare simply copied, if it was just flat-out plagiarism, then it's important to acknowledge that Marlowe seems to have had an exceptionally high degree of influence over Shakespeare's work compared with other contemporary dramatists. Now, sometimes people turn to stylometric analyses as silver bullets to kill off these sorts of questions immediately. Such an extremely high degree of confidence is misplaced in my view. Like any approach, stylometry is really only as good as its execution. At some point, I will do the Cusum controversy, which illustrates this in terrifying detail. But also, even if carried out meticulously, stylometry can only inform. It cannot prove. 
If ever linguistic analysis is presented as though it can rise to the level of proof, not just evidence, but proof, then it would be worth taking a very careful step back from whomever is promoting it and checking over their credentials. Anyway, the useful thing about stylometry is that it can test a lot of countable features relatively quickly in comparison to other parts of the same dataset or other datasets. You can test whatever amuses you, everything from feminine endings to function words. You can plot the results over time to see if your author has changed in style from the start of their career to the end or after a major life event or whatever. And timeline is a key factor in this case. So remember Shakespeare's lost years. Those are the seven years from 1585 to 1592 when there are no records of him at all. No official documents, no plays, nothing. And remember that Marlowe's published works all appear within this time frame. These then stop suddenly in 1593, one would presume mainly as a result of his death. And most of Shakespeare's work is dated from around 1592 onwards. If there is overlap, it's probably small, and given how woolly records are back then, rather than overlapping, the two chronologies could even be perfectly contiguous. Marlowe stops, Shakespeare starts. We don't know for definite, but either scenario is feasible. Shakespeare is born, does nothing literary that we know of, and then vanishes. Throughout that time, Marlowe's writing begins to appear, but then he dies. Shakespeare almost immediately reappears, and now he's a dramatist and poet. It's certainly interesting, but if you look hard, you could find any number of coincidences like this. So, alone, whilst intriguing, it's not proof. Back to stylometry, with this timeline in mind. Rather than informing us that Marlowe and Shakespeare were likely different authors, according to Peter Ferry, all the stylometric analyses put forward so far that plot the results over time show that Marlowe's work supposedly fits in just where Shakespeare would have been on his developmental arc at the beginning of his writing career. In other words, according to Ferry, yes, the results between the Shakespeare and Marlowe canons show differences, but those differences can be accounted for by Marlowe's relative lack of age and experience, and at the point that he supposedly transitions into his Shakespeare identity, these new writings pick up precisely where he has left off in his literary progress. But there are some qualitative arguments too. Some suggest that there are hints in Shakespeare's work that he is Marlowe and therefore not dead. One such example is the opening of Sonnet 71. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly sullen bell. Give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. In fact, a recurring question for Shakespearean scholars is who the sonnets are supposedly by. The implied writer of them, since there is a general agreement that they are not autobiographical. Their themes, ideas and characters do not seem to link especially well with the known life of Shakespeare. By contrast, if he had faked his own death, Marlowe's life would have undergone a radical shift. He would have had to change home and friends. When he got back into his arts, he would have been obliged to work with a new theatre and associate with different actors and patrons. 
Inevitably, he would have come into contact with new ideas and experiences, and he might have been doing all this under a cloud of dishonour. Some point to Sonnet 25 as evidence of this. Let those who are in favour with their stars of public honour and proud titles boast, whilst I, whom fortune of such triumph bars, unlooked for joy in that I honour most. Great princes' favourites their fair leaves spread, but as the marigold at the sun's eye, and in themselves their pride lies buried, for at a frown they in their glory die. The painful warrior, famous for fight, after a thousand victories once foiled, is from the book of honour raised quite, and all the rest forgot for which he toiled. Then happy I that love and beloved, where I may not remove, nor be removed. Apologies for mangling that horribly, I'm sorry. I can't get the stress in the right places. It's just reminded me of my GCSE classes. Good lord. Anyway, this certainly reads like the bitter lament of a once successful person fallen from grace. This supposedly carries on in the next three sonnets which beg for a return of good opinion, allude to weary travels, and intimate at a desperation to return. The other sonnets too talk of disgrace, guilt, and fallen fortunes, all very odd when compared with Shakespeare, the Stratford Glover's son, but seemingly very understandable if viewed from Kit Marlowe's perspective on the world. Others point to Shakespeare's plays too, and point out how many of them deal with similar themes to those that Kit Marlowe would have endured if he really did fake his own death. Just a few of these include switching identities, catastrophic events, being banished, falling into absolute disgrace, and, no surprise, death. So many deaths. Real deaths. Presumed deaths that actually aren't real deaths, and, of course, faked deaths. In his 2014 book, Will in the Word, Greenblatt, that's the Greenblatt of the Holocaust denial, anyway, Greenblatt summarises these themes thus. Again and again in his plays, an unforeseen catastrophe, one of his favourite manifestations of it is a shipwreck, suddenly turns what had seemed like happy progress, prosperity, smooth sailing into disaster, terror and loss. The loss is obviously and immediately material, but it is also, and more crushingly, a loss of identity. To wind up on an unknown shore without one's friends, habitual associates, familiar network. This catastrophe is often epitomised by the deliberate alteration or disappearance of the name and with it the alteration or disappearance of social status. Shakespeare's characters repeatedly have to lay claim to a gentility that is no longer immediately apparent, all of its conventional signs having been swept away by the wild waves. Intriguingly, however, Marlovia doesn't seem to be at pains to try to make too much of these parallels between Kit's life and death and the events in the plays. The argument from their side, wisely I think, is that the plays are just too rich. There are too many events, there are too many circumstances. With time and effort, you could make them appear to match up with anyone. But they do note that sometimes some allusions or in-jokes or snippets are inserted that are very difficult to make sense of without some external explanatory factor. And Marlowe being the author could, in some cases, actually be the key to understanding them, or at least to understanding their existence, even if we still can't retrieve the intended point. 
Two examples of this include a character in Merry Wives of Windsor mixing up Marlowe's well-known song, Come Live With Me, with the words from Psalm 137, the most famous song about exile in existence. And then the character Touchstone in As You Like It apparently jokes about a great reckoning in a little room. Remember, Marlowe's argument was over a bill. It was called The Reckoning, and he was supposedly killed in a little room in a house in Deptford. If Marlowe and Shakespeare were contemporaries, there's a great chance they would have known each other and even been friends, or at least friendly. It's certainly strange, then, for one playwright to joke about the murder of another, a bright young star who was in so many ways just like Shakespeare himself. Unless, of course, Kit is in on the joke, and then it's a laugh at everyone else's expense. Also, reassuringly from my perspective anyway, Marlovia doesn't go off the deep end looking for acrostics and ciphers and so on. This hasn't stopped all of them. Some see the curse on Shakespeare's tombstone as a gigantic acronym. Others have discovered messages hidden in the sonnets. As you can probably tell, I'm generally sceptical of all of these approaches because if you torture your algorithm or your data long enough, it will tell you whatever you want to hear. I have similar reservations about ambiguous passages and their potential for multiple meanings. Again, if you try hard enough, you can find a way to infer that a sentence that appears to say one thing means something else entirely. Words like face and figure lend themselves to literal, figurative and metaphorical usages, and depending on which the reader chooses, they can seem to insinuate the dark and dramatic into otherwise quite ordinary sentences. I do like this theory of Shakespeare the spy who ended up out in the cold, though. It's fun, and no surprise, there is a world of Marlowe fan fiction out there. Some of it's actually readable, some of it's quite good. Famous poet and secret agent is disgraced after something, maybe a mission goes wrong, sensationally fakes his own death, flees in exile to start a new life, becomes even more dramatically celebrated than before. I mean, there's a lot to work with here. But it's time to touch back down and acknowledge that this theory isn't watertight. For a start, whilst Marlowe was of a very similar social class to Shakespeare, records of his education do exist. He attended King's School in Canterbury. Then, as we know, he spent almost seven years at Cambridge, if we pretend like he didn't vanish for lengthy periods of time during his degrees, that is. Also, with the best will in the world, will Shakespeare, I guess, oh God, it's rather difficult to hide a person for the rest of their life, and in this case, that would be a good 30 years. If he was publishing a Shakespeare, he clearly wasn't keeping himself out of sight all the time. And there's other evidence too, that whoever Marlowe and Shakespeare were, they do seem to have been two separate people. But we'll get back to that a bit later on. For now, sadly, we must leave the espionage and the intrigue behind and move on to the fifth and final candidate for the role of Supreme Bard. Not a spy this time, this one was, yet again, an aristocrat, but in his favour he has the distinction of living a much more interesting life than either Bacon or De Vere. Almost as interesting as Marlowe's, in fact. Our last Shakespeare is William Stanley. Sixth Earl of Derby, Most Noble Order, 
of the Garter, eventually husband of Elizabeth de Vere, yes, eldest daughter of none other than Edward de Vere the Monster, Stanley was also incomprehensibly over-related to about 500 dukes, countesses, lords, baronesses. I actually spent some time trying to disentangle some of it. It's migraine-inducing. The most salient, and for the Stanleys, the most dangerous fact is that they also possess lineage that leads directly back to King Henry VII. Okay, so why would this be an issue? Well, Henry VII's son, and next on the throne, was Henry VIII. So far, so good. He produces three children, and his son, Edward VI, takes the throne at nine years old but Edward won't even make it to adulthood. Based on the records of the symptoms, it seems like he contracted something like bronchopneumonia, and eventually he dies at the age of 15. Thus, he's succeeded by Mary, the eldest sister. However, she too only rules for a few years before falling ill and dying aged just 42 during, of all things, a flu epidemic. So the crown reverts to the last surviving child, Elizabeth I. And she does indeed take the throne and rule for an astonishingly long time, but by the time she had reached her 40s and had no children, people began to realise that with her, Henry VIII's line would die. That caused a scramble. Who, then, is next in line to the throne? Where is the power going to go? A quick search of the family tree showed that the crown would default to Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor, and then pass down through her offspring. Mary Tudor also had three children, but the son dies as a child, leaving two daughters to vie for the throne. The younger daughter, Eleanor the Countess of Cumberland, would have just one child, Margaret Countess of Derby, and her two surviving children would be her eldest son, Ferdinando, and his younger brother, William, our would-be Shakespeare. Okay, that's a really complicated narrative to keep track of, so it really boils down to this very simple fact. This tenuous but direct link back to the dead Henry VII puts the Stanleys in precarious proximity to the throne. Far enough away that they could neither benefit from its protections nor make a realistic claim for ascendancy, but also just a bit too close. Close enough that no one, especially the Queen herself, could write them off as immaterial. A little death here, a little marriage there, and the Stanley position could shift dramatically so that they stood to directly and legitimately inherit the crown. Or they could be found traitors, and summarily executed in public as a spectacular warning to anyone else having such lofty ideas. Monarchs have historically not dealt kindly with upstart near relations making grabs for power, and even the merest suspicion of duplicitousness or engineering or conniving could be fatal. As a prime example of this, the eldest brother, the Ferdinando that I just mentioned, died suddenly in his early 30s of an entirely unexpected and very abrupt violent illness. This wasn't a time when crime labs could test for poisons, so no one really knows whether it was a natural event or premeditated murder, but untimely deaths in the highest echelons of the aristocracy were numerous enough 
that everyone's paranoia was permanently set to kill. And more, Ferdinando's death left William Stanley, through his mother, as someone who could, in just the right circumstances, be an heir. Maybe. This was a very unstable position to occupy. He was a prime target for conspirators plotting to overthrow Elizabeth and install a new monarch, and he was high on her watch list of potential traitors. A spiteful word or a misrepresented action could be enough to bring his life to a very early and very painful conclusion. To put it simply, this was all rather limiting for William Stanley. Politics was far too dangerous. If he got loud or seemed to be amassing support or looked like he was accruing too much power, things could get very ugly very quickly. Better to be a little quieter, stay local, bother the people in his own backyard, and this is what he did. But also, perhaps figuring that some sort of tiger-wrestling lifestyle might be safer than hanging around the Tudor court, he went on hair-raising adventures too. After graduating from Oxford, possibly in the company of the young poet John Donne, possibly not, Stanley spent three years travelling. According to the rather fantastic stories in circulation, in France he busied himself with love affairs and duels. In Italy, he disguised himself as a bishop for the purposes of travelling. I don't know why you'd do that, maybe there's a benefit. Let me know if there's some mad benefit to being a bishop. In Egypt, he fought and killed a tiger. In Anatolia, he was saved from execution by a love-struck Muslim noblewoman. And on through Moscow and Greenland, back to Europe. Getting a really strong Gilderoy Lockhart vibe here, I have to be honest. And anyway, even if I didn't get that vibe, just one original source of many of these tales is to be found in a ballad, Sir William Stanley's Garland, that quite specifically exaggerates the whole affair for fun. It starts out by claiming that the three years of travel were actually 21, and that he travelled most of the globe rather than just half a dozen countries. To try to pin this down a little, did Stanley travel? Yes, documentary evidence certainly seems to point to him doing so. Did he probably engage in various romantic affairs on his way round? Honestly, that's too much within the realms of probability. Did he kill a tiger with his bare hands? I'm going to go out on a limb that's still attached to my body here and say, no, probably not. Tigers are massive. Anyway, when Stanley wasn't abroad, possibly seducing courtiers and throttling tigers, or at home playing big political fish in the local tiny pond, what else did he do? Well, apparently, he wrote, and we come by this information from espionage. I mean, come on, Enclair is never more than three degrees removed from secret agency, let's be honest. But for real, in 1599, it seems that Edward Somerset, the fifth Earl of Worcester, had a spy on his payroll named William Sterrell. Sterrell's job was to try to further the Roman Catholic cause in the country. Remember, Queen Elizabeth was a strict Protestant, she took a very dim view of Roman Catholics, so much so that she enacted all sorts of anti-Roman Catholic laws. From Sterrell's perspective then, replacing Elizabeth with a monarch who had Roman Catholic sympathies would be an excellent move. As part of this grand scheme, Sterrell was attempting to find high-level figures who might be encouraged, or forced, into helping and the Stanley family had long been suspected of harbouring Roman Catholic sympathies. 
yet another reason why the surviving Stanley might have had moments of anxiety. And as I said in the beginning, with just the right series of very lucky or contrived events, William Stanley could just about maybe inherit the throne. But before any of that could happen, he would need to be convinced to play along with the plot. If you have a carrot at one end, the crown, in a plot as big as this, it's extremely wise to have a stick at the other. Why is that? Well, your would-be king might get cold feet. Worse, he might get caught and feel obliged to tell everyone everything. It just made sense to have enough leverage over such a person to keep them on task and silent. Thus, William Stanley, 6th Earl of Derby, became one of Sterile's principal objects. The Roman Catholic plan was bigger than just England. It involved a number of countries in Europe, various other heads of state, and of course the Pope too. To keep this whole network up to date, Sterile sent back regular reports about his various dealings, passing information out of the country to places like Antwerp, Brussels and Rome. No surprise though, Given what he was up to, he often used pseudonyms, and it just happens that several of his letters, penned under the name George Fenner, were intercepted, and in them he writes about William Stanley. I can only read his report as one of intense, irritable disappointment. Will the 6th Earl of Derby, William Stanley, be helpful in some way to the Roman Catholic cause? It seems not. Tersely, Sterile laments that the Earl of Derby is busy in penning comedies for the common players. Honestly, the Elizabethan period, you couldn't even sit and write a play for the masses without some Tudor spook peering critically over your shoulder. And we think peer reviewer too is bad. Anyway, based on this secret report intercepted in 1599, alluding to the Earl of Derby penning comedies, Nearly 300 years later, in 1891, James Greenstreet would propose William Stanley, 6th Earl of Derby, as a candidate for the position of Shakespeare the Adventurer. His argument was that the spy's contemptuously dismissive comment actually revealed that Stanley was secretly penning unknown works, and that these unknown works could be identified within the Shakespeare canon. And to be fair, there is kind of a logic here. I mean, as I've said many times now, Sterile was indeed a spy with a task of forwarding a cause. To that end, his job was to hunt out and report back high-quality intelligence. In his world, and for his agenda, the personally damaging secrets of an aristocrat like Stanley would be invaluable as leverage, collateral, even as a form of trade. Sterile was likely absolutely primed to detect anything along the lines of a secret penchant, and I've also said many times by now, an aristocrat couldn't realistically choose to write dramas for the lowly commoners, especially not someone tentatively in line for the throne. It would be like discovering that Prince William writes episodes of Coronation Street. I really like that idea. God, wouldn't that be awesome? But anyway, so there is some juice to this lemon, then, but unfortunately, just as James Greenstreet was developing his theory of Shakespearean authorship in 1892, he died, suddenly aged only 45. Three years later, in 1895, his work was picked up and developed along biographical grounds, like Oxfordia, Darbia, if you can call it that, 
developed the links between the plays, their probable writer, and Stanley's personal life, particularly his travels, his nobility, his education, and so forth. The real enthusiasm, however, arrived with the chemist Arthur Walsh Tytherley. It's either Tytherley or Tytherley, I'm not sure, I'm going to say Tytherley. Tytherley meant business, and he tried everything. Analyzing Stanley's handwriting, gathering genetic evidence, highlighting Stanley's connection to the theatre through his financing of drama companies, pointing out the identical first name and initials that William Stanley has to William Shakespeare, WS both times, the way both Williams would occasionally sign off as just Will, even quite angrily trying to disprove other candidates. I mean, come on, it's not a zero sum game, Ditherly. And actually, some of his criticisms of other candidates showed a weird glasshouse's lack of insight into his own arguments. All of this external biographical circumstantial evidence is stumped by one huge problem. If William Stanley did pen dramas and poems, we don't know what they are. I mean, setting aside the presumption that he wrote the Shakespeare canon, obviously, works under his own name are either lost to the mists of time or they haven't been formally identified as his. So as usual, we can find plenty of external evidence, these coincidental links back and forth between Stanley's life and the various events in the plays, but there is simply no internal evidence, no language, and therefore no way to perform any sort of authorship analysis. So, now we've had all our five theories. Four candidates, one group. William Stanley, the adventurer, fighting tigers one day, appearing in secret intelligence reports the next. Only circumstantial evidence, though, no writings to compare with the canon. If he were on Twitter, he'd only ever retweet the nice things other people said about him. Shakespeare status, doubtful, but difficult to categorically discount. Then there was Christopher Marlowe, probable spy, definite writer, possible faker of own death. Plenty of his writings exist, and links to the canon are not merely present, some are actually very striking. If he were on Twitter, he would be killing it. Shakespeare status, just about possible, but mainly just because I really wish it were true. Our third candidate, Edward de Vere, aristocrat, monster, temperamental disappointment. Like Stanley, however, none of the evidence presented rises above the level of circumstantial, and the parallels in his case can be found in plenty of others besides. If he were on Twitter, he'd bitterly subtweet about upstarts, but with way too many of those crying with laughter emoji. Shakespeare status, extremely doubtful. Fourth candidate, Sir Francis Bacon, newly made nobleman, epic lightning rod for absolutely fantastic cipher-based conspiracy theory, unexciting writer of essays. There is linguistic data available for analysis, yes, but unsurprisingly the differences in the genres lead to differences in the results. If he were on Twitter, he'd randomly tweet Francis Bacon one day, thus giving rise to Francis Bacon Day, which he would not really understand. Shakespeare status, possible, but all things given, not very likely. And then there was the group theory, the cutout, which I keep sidestepping because reasons. Mysterious, foreshadowing reasons. Moving on, surely then the story is over. <laughs> Not even slightly. We haven't got close to answering the question who wrote Shakespeare yet. But where do we go from here? 
What happens when you move out of the era of circumstantial biographical conjecture and cryptographic cosmological overlays when you go all 21st century and you get computers involved? What happens if you call in the forensic linguists? Better yet, what happens if you do both at the same time? Tune into the next episode to find out. Spoiler, it is at least as wild as anything you've heard so far. End of part four of six. If you're interested in more Shakespeare content from linguists at Lancaster, then search the internet for Future Learn Shakespeare's Language. Those four words, Future Learn Shakespeare's Language. This free online course is all about both revealing the meanings in the works and exploring the myths about Shakespeare in general. And as a bonus, you get introduced to corpus-based methods for analysing Shakespeare. What's not to love? This episode was researched and fact-checked by my research assistant, Rebecca Jagodzinski, and my intern, Debbie Tomkinson. And it was narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. I am also extremely grateful for all the input I've had from the renowned Shakespeare authority, Professor Jonathan Culpepper, creator of that online course I mentioned, who has patiently entertained this whole mini-series idea from inception to gruesome, bloody execution. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many, many others. You can find acknowledgements and references at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash Enclair. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore Enclair. Or, if you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire. H.